And if you have a Bible this morning, on this fifth Sunday of this Lenten season, I'd invite you to turn to two texts with me today, the Old Testament text and the Gospel text. The Old Testament text is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The prophet writes this. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. The gospel text is in the gospel of John. If you turn with me to John, the 12th chapter, the gospel text comes from John 12, verses 20 through 33. And I'd invite you, if you're with us this morning and able, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. John 12, starting at verse 20. Some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and made a, a request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus replied, the time has come for the human one to be glorified. I assure you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. Whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am there, my servant will be also. My Father will honor whoever serves me. Now I'm deeply troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this time. No, for this is the reason I have come to this time. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard and said, it's thunder. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus replied, this voice wasn't for my benefit but for yours. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler will be thrown out. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. He said this to show how he was going to die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So uh, yesterday, um, Pastor Heather had kind of an almost all-day class with our sixth graders. Uh, normally, we would lead what we call the credo class, which is a, a kind of catechism for sixth graders, getting them ready to hand off to Drew and to the youth group in some ways. But also to prepare some of them for baptism and uh, some for membership. But it's a kind of chance to think through their faith. Well, in a normal year, we would have kind of done that over several Sundays. Uh, but because of the uniqueness of this year and the challenges of being together, Pastor Heather had them all together yesterday. And had a bunch of us kind of go hour by hour. And, and they were great. And, and we were talking to them. Some of you may have seen online that Pastor Ryan 
had an hour, and he, I don't know why he was talking about Balaam. We'll have to figure that out later. But he asked the kids, the sixth graders, who is the character in the scripture who had a, a donkey that talked back to him, that talked to him? It was kind of quiet for a moment. Finally, a brave sixth grader raised their hand and said, I'm going to guess Shrek. Um, <laughs> so we may not baptize them yet. But, um, uh, really need to look into what the felt board stories are um, in children's ministry. But, um, but I got a chance to talk to them about, about membership. And so I was sharing with them a bit about the history of the church in Nazarene, and I was talking to them about what membership means. And uh, I was telling them a little bit about the founding of the church in Nazarene, that the group that met in Pilot Point was actually this really diverse group from north, south, east, and west that gathered in the tent. And on my little presentation, there's a picture of one of my favorite kind of Nazarene history pictures. It's the moment where they finally got it together, and they march around the tent and what's often called the Hallelujah March, where they finally got to this place of unity. And so I was sharing with them that, that one of the interesting things about the denomination is that we really didn't leave anybody, although a lot of our early members were Methodists, but they also came from all sorts of other denominations too, but they had a common interest in holiness. And so I was sharing with them that we're kind of a big tent. And I was using as an example of that, that those of, uh, those of the, the group that are getting baptized in a couple of weeks and some others, and we're looking forward to doing baptisms on Easter, I was sharing with them that we will, um, we are going to what we call immerse them, right? We're going to dunk them. <laughs> We're gonna, and I was joking about holding them under and all that kind of stuff, but we are going to, to immerse them. I said, but in the church in Nazarene, we will practice other modes of baptism. I told them a story about probably one of the more meaningful baptisms that I ever had an opportunity to perform as a pastor was uh, somebody who I had to pour water over, and it was amazing and transforma transformational, and I was thinking about sprinkling, but I was saying there are some groups who just, those other modes are right out. It's dunking or nothing, right? Like it's immersion or nothing. I said, but we won't, we don't fight about that stuff. We think it's the spirit of God that matters, not the mode of the water. And, uh, and they were all into that. And I said, and, and another example is a couple of, at least one, maybe one or two of the, the sixth graders actually won't get baptized next week because they were baptized as infants. And so we will reaffirm their baptism uh, but we won't baptize them. And I said, so that there are some people, um, when they have babies, we will dedicate them. And that's what many of you in this room, your parents dedicated you when you were younger, and now you're coming to this time of baptism. But others were baptized as infants. I said, the church in Nazarene, again, we can argue both sides of that, but we've decided that's not going to be something that divides us. And so <laughs> I said, there's a famous quote, and I was feeling like we were getting a little bit in the deep end at this point. So I decided, I'm not going to go full into this, but I had on my presentation a quote that's often associated with John Wesley, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, or freedom, but in all things, charity. And I said, so we kind of have to have that spirit. But I didn't tell them who said that. I said, it's kind of a person that, a theologian that's important to us, and we, we quote quite a, quite a bit and kind of draw a lot of our heritage from him. And this one kid just blurts out, oh, we know you're talking about John Wesley. Um, <laughs> They don't know Balaam, Ryan, but they knew John Wesley, right? Like, um, yeah, we know John Wesley. And this one kid raises his hand. I go, yeah. He says, he goes, yeah. He goes, some people around here, it's God and then John Wesley and then everybody else. <laughs> and he said, we just need to figure out John Wesley is just a man, okay? And I was like, okay, okay. Um, we, uncle, uncle. But um, great line. 
But part of the reason that we um, are a tradition that draws a lot of our lineage in theology from John Wesley was his emphasis on holiness. That Wesley in the 18th century was part of an, of an Anglican church that was basically a state faith where people were Christian because they were Anglican, where much of the faith felt like things that people had assented to in their head but had not transformed their heart. And that um, the goal of the gospel had simply become an assurance that we get to go to heaven or we have eternal life when we die. But in terms of what's happening right now, that felt very dead to Wesley. And, and so he felt like that, that, that cheapens what the gospel is proclaiming to us. Because the gospel is proclaiming and holiness is living in the ways that God intended for us to live. And that that we're intended to become something, not just after death, but we're, we're intended to become something in life. So that it's not just saying no to sin, but it's saying yes to transformation. And thankfully, um, you know, we holiness types, I, I don't feel like we're the only people saying that these days. Um, I feel like the church in many places has begun to recover and, and they may use different language than sanctification or Christian perfection that we sometimes use in our heritage with John Wesley. They may use terms like discipleship or even in our mission statement, Christ-likeness or being filled with the Spirit, or being transformed to be what we are called to be. But at the heart of the gospel is not just a hope for someday, but leaning into the transformation that Christ has for us today. Now, in ethics, um, we kind of think about that in terms of moving towards, and there's a Greek word that is used, towards a telos. What is the goal of being human, what is the goal that we were created to live into? And so in, in my work on ethics, I have to say, I sat through what feels like dozens, if not hundreds of lectures talking about Aristotle and having a telos. And usually the illustration that was used in those moments was an acorn. In fact, I remember a professor who would bring acorns to class and say, this is an acorn. And an acorn, what is so strange about an acorn is if you look at it, you can't see it, but you know that if the right elements are in place, if the acorn gets planted and tended and cared for and the, the soil and the water and the sunlight, all of those forces work together, suddenly the acorn will begin to move and will begin to develop. And out of that acorn will become this mighty oak tree in its fullness, right? And so in ethics, you have this idea that says, what is it that we are supposed to move towards and then kind of how do we get there? And in so many ways, that's what holiness is about. I was, in, I was at DMB the other day um, buying dog food. And I went by DMB right now because of springtime. They have this huge display of all kinds of seeds. Just packets and packets and bags and bags of seed. And, and, um, and this will shock you. I, I, I don't know what to do with any of that stuff. Um, I'm a city kid, grew up in the city. Um, you know, we, we were good at killing plants at our house. But, but I, I have to say, as I watched people take the seeds, I was a little bit envious. But what's amazing is, here is this packet, and they all had to have pictures on the front of the seeds, right? Because if the seeds got mixed up, we wouldn't necessarily be able to tell kind of one seed from another unless we really knew agriculture well. But the picture on the packet is, if you plant this and the right things happen, this is going to come from this. 
which some of you delight in. Some of you do have dirty fingernails, and you love that stuff. But the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, what is necessary for us to become what we were created to be? In the same way that the acorn needs the soil and the water and the sunlight, what is it that we need in order to become what we were created to be? If you'll go back with me to Jeremiah 31 for a moment. Jeremiah 31 comes in this section of the book that Jeremiah has spent a whole bunch of chapters tearing down. In fact, the vision, the mission for Jeremiah is to proclaim words that were difficult for, for Israel and Judah to hear, for, for God is tearing down their life. They are moving into exile. But these chapters come from what is often called by scholars the book of comfort in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who spent so much time tearing down, now is going to build up and talk about what God is going to do. Uh, maybe the one verse that many people in this room know well from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. Especially, I always joke, in a university community, it's the one verse that most Christian college students can quote from the Old Testament. They, they have a needlepoint picture of it somewhere on their wall, right? With a cat hanging on or something. Like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a word from the Lord that says, exile is not going to be the end. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now, you've heard me say this, but I always joke with college students, you love Jeremiah 29 11, but you never read Jeremiah 29 10, which is God saying, in 70 years, I'm going to come to you and redeem you, for I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. So I always joke with college students, I know that verse means to you, God has a job for you and a spouse for you, but he promises by the time you're 90, he's going to get around to that. He's, he's got... It's got it all worked out. But actually, Jeremiah 29 is saying, listen, this, this exile is not going to be quick. It's going to take some time. In fact, Jeremiah 29 also says, so work for the good of Babylon, because you're going to be here a while. And so work for its good. Um, seek its welfare. But exile is not going to be the end, Jeremiah says. In fact, God's going to redeem you and bring you out. But here's the thing. I'm going to form, Jeremiah 31, I'm going to form a new covenant with you. And it won't be like the old covenant. It's interesting that it's here in Jeremiah, it's in this moment of redeeming from exile that God begins to talk about a new covenant. Sometimes uh, we kind of 21st century Christians, 2,000 years later, we tend to associate the new, the new covenant with the New Testament and the old covenant with the Old Testament as though God is speaking things that aren't going to be enacted for 540 years. But God is here talking about a new covenant that he is going to enact with the people of God. And so what is different between the old covenant and the new covenant as God speaks about it in Jeremiah? I think it's this. That when God brought the people out of Egypt and enacted this covenant that is that in the text is referred to as the Old Covenant, a covenant written on stone tablets by Moses, a, a kind of life that God imagined for the people. That was enacted in this way. God heard their cries. God heard slaves distressed with no hope and no future. And so God redeems them out of slavery. And it's fascinating in a very important text. I don't know if you know this. I kind of like Exodus. And it's a very important text. 
Because it reminds us that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of character that God has. A book I just finished recently said, had God decided to choose the Egyptians, we'd have a very different kind of God revealed to us. But God heard the cries of slaves and the oppressed, and he redeems them out. But that's what God has done. He's redeemed them out of oppression and slavery. That's the kind of God who works for that kind of justice and chooses them to be a people, even though they aren't a people. But now, after all of these years walking with them, they have failed to live into that covenant. And so their exile in Babylon is because of the failures to be faithful. And so now God is not just dealing with an enslaved people. He is now dealing with an enslaved people who are enslaved because they have been disobedient. And so God says, it's not going to be like the old covenant where he just kind of redeemed you out of slavery. I have realized I have to have grace and mercy towards you. And I'm going to redeem you not just because you aren't the people, but I'm going to redeem you out of Babylon because I am full of steadfast love and mercy and I'm ready to relent from punishing. You're not excited about that, but this is really good. And so God is saying, this will be a covenant not just of mercy upon the enslaved, but grace upon those who have sinned. And I'm going to redeem you by this grace. So if you will, it is the soil of grace that makes transformation possible. So what makes the new covenant new is the context of God's grace. In the Exodus event, God acts as liberator, but now God demonstrates steadfast love and mercy that gives not only the people of God, but now we continue to realize gives each of us in this room and connected. It gives to us a second chance. And so if you will, grace is the soil into which our lives are planted. And without it, we would sit there as a seed on a shelf with no possibility of becoming what we were created to be. But thanks be to God, we have been planted in the soil of God's grace. Now God acts, but it's interesting for those of us holiness folks, Wesleyan types, we have to respond to that grace. In fact, sometimes when we talk about Wesley, we will talk about what we call responsible grace, and we get kind of cute theologically with it. We'll write response slash able grace. That it is now that the seed has been planted in the soil, now that the seed is in the soil, it now can respond and begin to move. And so what is our response? Our response, according to Jeremiah, is this, to have a new heart. To have a new heart. It's interesting to me that the biblical writers think about the heart and not just the head. We have a tendency to kind of focus on the head, if you will. We love to argue about various kind of technicalities of doctrine and try to make sure that we're all kind of believing and assenting to the right things, which has a place. But Jeremiah seems to recognize that the problem that God's people have is they love the wrong things. They desire the wrong things. They pursue the wrong things. That's why Jesus can invite us to seek, to desire, to love first the kingdom of God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That has to do with putting ourselves in practices that begin to reshape, reform, transform the desires of our hearts, to reorder disordered love. 
Part of the reason I think it's so important for us to gather and worship regularly is because all week long, in various ways, we are too often taught to begin to love and desire and want the wrong things. And we have gathered here this morning because God has called us, but he also draws us close to himself so that we can learn to love the kingdom, to love the things of God. But still, the seed can't grow even though it begins to respond to soil. Jeremiah and the prophets in other places will say, you not only need a new heart, but a new spirit. And so for us, it is the spirit of God that becomes, if you will, the water and the sunlight, the elements necessary for that seed to begin to flourish and develop and move towards what it was ultimately created to be. And so we respond and I, I, I say this often, but I want you to get it deep down in your heart. Holiness too often has sounded like, are you doing what you shouldn't do? Stop it. Are you not doing what you should do? Do it. Again, I, maybe I went to too many summer camps where it just felt like I was told all the things I was doing wrong and I knew them. And it felt like my responses, I was a really easy target to go to the altar. But so often I felt like coming to the altar was an attempt to grit my teeth and promise this time I would do better, only to get home and immediately have a fight with my sister. Which was really her fault, but nevertheless. We cannot grit our teeth and become what we were created to be. The acorn does not will itself to become the oak tree. It responds to the soil of grace and it responds to the light and water of the Spirit. So what we are doing is we are responding to the tug of the Spirit that continues to give us strength to become what we were created to be. If you'll turn back with me to John 12. Some of my favorite verses in this text, beginning at verse 24 again. I assure you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. Whoever serves me must follow me. Wherever I am, there my servant will be also. My Father will honor whoever serves me. Again, our response to grace is to begin to put ourselves in practices that begin to teach us to love the right things. But our response to the Spirit, as we said in our call to worship today from Psalm 51, is a repentant spirit, a contrite heart. Jesus says it this way, to put to death our old life. And in this powerful metaphor, Jesus says, unless the seed dies, unless the seed walks away, gives up what it was in the beginning, unless the seed dies, it cannot move into that form of new life. When I was a professor at SNU, I had to share my office with the philosophy professor who was an analytical philosopher. It was just terrible. He is wonderful and very smart, but... He, he, when you have to share an office with an analytical philosopher, they're always, 
they're always challenging you on what you're saying. And so I have to say, every time I say words like, we have to die to ourselves," or the seed has to die, I can hear my friend Brent say to me, that's really pretty talk, Daniels, but what in the world does that mean? That's pretty talk, but what does that mean to die? As I was thinking about that this week, what does it mean for the seed to die? I was thinking about how death to self means, first and foremost, the willingness to invite a reimagination in our existence. To reimagine ourselves, not just as the seed, but to reimagine that there is an oak tree, there is, there is a fullness, a goodness, a beauty, and an image of God waiting to be birthed and rebirthed in us. And so we have to reimagine that this, that we are, is not all that we were created to be, but that God is moving us to what he desires for us to fully be. But that takes a whole act of reimagination. For some of you, this is very difficult because for, for much of your life, people have spoken into you forms of negativity, and oftentimes you've joined in that talk to say over and over again, I am this, I am this, I am not worthy, I am, I am not good, I am not what God wants me to be. And that gets reinforced over and over again. And so the act of imagination will not just be giving up a brokenness of sin, but it will be setting aside all of the fragmented, broken images of self that have been imposed on you and, in, and invited in your own self-talk. It will mean setting aside that reimagination to really fully believe that God loves you. And God has plans for you and hopes for you and that you could be something by God's grace. For some of us, our imaginations are so captured. And this was really the problem, I think, for Israel. That when God brought them out of captivity in Egypt, he brought them in the wilderness to try to teach them a new way of living, but they had been so captured by the imagination of life under Pharaoh that all they could imagine is either going back to the flesh pots or becoming the embodiment of a, new, of a nation that just looks like maybe has God, we worship Yahweh in name, but we embody the life that Pharaoh lives. And so, so many of us, it will be setting aside that kind of imagination to move to a whole new way of understanding what it means to be faithful to God. But it's not just reimagination. It will also mean redirection. Dying to self oftentimes means we've been headed in a direction, but now God invites us to go a whole new direction that moves towards his purposes. This text means a lot to me. I've shared with some of you, there was a real turning point moment for me at 17. Um, I, I really wanted to be a sports journalist. I was a terrible athlete. I know that's surprising. But, uh, but I loved athletics, and I, I just, I thought, man, I'll, I'll be a sports journalist. And that's what I wanted to be. And I've shared this with you, and I repent of my foolishness and sinfulness, but I did not want to come to Nampa to come to school. I was a Seattle kid, and no offense, it seemed a little hickish to me here. But that was the 80s. We're, we're a lot cooler now. Some of you missed the 80s, and I can't help you with that problem. But uh, guys, I didn't want to come here. 
I went to World Youth Congress, uh, what's now Nazarene, NYC. Uh, and some friends invited me to kind of sit with them towards the front. We were in a big tent in Mexico. And uh, Stephen Manley was preaching actually out of this text. And I don't remember much of the sermon other than I remember he used this verse that said, and where I am, there my servant shall be also. And I remember the point of the message, or at least the point I received was this, that so often we get that in reverse. We say to God, here's where I'm going, come along. Here are my plans. I have, I have formed my life. Now God, come and bless it. And I remember Manly saying, maybe right now you could invert that and begin to ask, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Where are you going? And I promise I'll follow. And I, you know, it may have been bad, bad food because we were eating some bad food that week. I've had questions about this every once in a while. But I felt deep within my being, God was inviting me to die to self by choosing a redirection of life. And I left that tent that night assured of two things. That, that I was supposed to go into ministry and I was supposed to come to college at NNC. I always loved to joke, coming to NNC was my version of taking up the cross. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but it turned into a really good thing. Um, But so often death to self will mean that we, we go a different direction in our life. We, we reimagine what we think we are to receive what God dreams us to be. And we choose a different direction, but it also can mean a repurposing of our lives. So often our lives are lived for self. But as we'll see in just a moment, this text is an invitation for the purpose of our lives, not just to be glorification of self, but edification of others. And so Jesus invites us to die like the seed, to follow his example. For grace is the soil that gives us the space of new beginning. And we need that new beginning. We need that soil because without it, we will not fulfill the purpose to which we were called. And the response of the seed is to rehabit our desires towards that purpose, to, to love, desire, and hunger and thirst for that purpose to come to fruition in life. And it is the Spirit of God that is the light and the water that nourishes the seed, making that transformation possible. But the response of the seed is to die to what it has been in order to become all that it was created to be, in its beauty, in its completeness, and in its edifying purposes. But I want to say one last thing this morning, and that is that, that I don't think that this is just for each of us individually, although it is for us individually. There is a call upon us to respond to God's grace, to reimagine, to redirect, to be repurposed in our lives. But holiness is not just an individual call. It, it is a communal call. If you have John still open, the text actually begins in a unique way. Let me just draw your attention to it. This is verse 20. Some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. They, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, 
in Galilee and made a request, sir, we want to see Jesus. And Philip told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus seemed to ignore them altogether. It's kind of fascinating how the text opens. Greeks come and talk to Philip and Andrew, and Jesus goes, oh, and it's, we don't have time for all this this morning. We could take a big chart and talk about all the times in John where Jesus says, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. And now in this text, he says, oh, it's my hour. The hour has come. But the hour has come because Greeks have shown up. (laughs) In the text right before it, the Pharisees say, oh, we'll never stop him because the whole world is now coming to him. Many scholars argue that's the point of the Greeks coming to him, is to say to us, the whole world is coming to him. In fact, some argue that the reason Philip and Andrew are named is because Philip and Andrew, by the time the Gospel of John is written, are known in the in the church community as apostles who've gone directly to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, and are now taking Christ to the world. And so I want to say to us this morning, the call to become what we were created to be is not just a call for us as individuals. It is a call for college church. It is a call for us in our life together. God invites us into a covenant with him that is a covenant of grace. And he has planted us in our life together in the soil of his grace. And our response is to learn to love the right things. To put ourselves in practices that shape and form our hearts. To constantly hear the voice of the Spirit and the activity of of God's presence in our midst, inviting us deeper and deeper into the purposes of God. But ultimately, it is even for us as a community to die, to reimagine not just what we have been, to, but, but to be willing to reimagine what God may want to do in and through us as a people together. And even a willingness to say, God, we have been going this direction, but we are willing to go that direction if that's what you call us to. And to recognize, and please hear me say this rightly, the body of Christ is called to care for each other deeply. And we always want to find ways to nurture and care the eye and the ear for each other, the hand and the foot caring for each other, nurturing each other, all the parts of the body edifying each other. But we are not the body of Christ in fullness and we will not become what we were created to be fully until we are repurposed for the sake of the whole world. (laughs) For the sake of the world. For God did not redeem Israel out of Egypt and he did not extend grace and redeem them again out of Babylon simply for their own sake. And he does not redeem us from the brokenness of sin and transform us to be reflections of Christ simply for our own sake. But for the sake of the Greeks and barbarians and Scythians and all of the folks who long for their lives to become what God has created them to become. 
And so the oak tree purpose is not just to simply be the oak tree, but to become that source of new life, help, and blessing for the sake of the world. Christ, we come to you today grateful for the soil of grace that you have invited us into. Teach us to love the right things. We thank you that you have not called us simply to grit our teeth and bear it and to work harder, to be better. But your spirit that surrounds us and calls us and woos us and your spirit that draws us deeper into a walk with you, that that spirit, spirit invites us into the life that you have for us. But our response is to die so that that newness might come. And so help us today. God, I pray for some who are here this morning who are online or in, present with us in this room who need reimagination. They believe that the sum total of their life will be to be a seed that sits on the shelf and never becomes more than what they are right now. May we imagine not only our own lives, but may we imagine the hopes and purposes you have for us as a congregation. That may mean redirection, and I... I pray, God, there may be a 17-year-old, a 27-year-old, a 57-year-old, an 87-year-old. Who has built their life and asked you to bless it. May we die to self by being open to the redirection that you want to to take us in a direction towards your purposes. And we invite you to repurpose our lives, not simply for the fulfillment of self, but for the transformation of our neighbor, our community, and of the world. Your hour came when the world came. <laughs> And you were lifted up for the sake of the redemption of the whole creation. And so form that purpose in us too. May we be a reflection of your concern for the world. May that be true in us today. Make us a holy people. Make us what you've created us to be. And all God's people said, amen.